If you're new to our church community or you've been coming for uh, the last handful of weeks, uh, we've been in a, a series of sermons called Common Ground, and we're looking at the common ground that Christianity has between different world religions and different worldviews, and we've looked at the common ground between Christianity and Islam, for example, uh, Hinduism, the common ground between uh, Christianity and Judaism, and then we looked at uh, Mormonism last week. And this morning, I'm going to talk about this sort of weird possibility of common ground uh, between uh, Christianity and atheism or science, which seem uh, just galaxies apart. But before I do that, I just want to comment on Camp Kidjam this past week because it was just an amazing week. And my, one of my favorite uh, glimpses and images of the week as I was preparing for this sermon was just seeing all the kids outside running around, laughing, enjoying themselves. And it was just really cool as I was going to some meetings or grabbing lunch, just seeing our children enjoying themselves. And on Thursday, we had what was called uh, Water Day for Camp Kid Jam. And somehow I was coaxed, cajoled, bribed into going to the dunk tank. Um, There I am right there. And uh, sitting in the dunk tank. And Christy Lumber, one of our fabulous volunteers here and great parents, uh, whom I trusted, past tense, uh, is, is standing next to the little arm that if you hit that with a ball, obviously the person in the dunk tank gets dunked. And she's kind of saying some stuff to me, like, you know, trying to draw my attention away from her, because I was, like, looking over her as skeptically. And uh, she's like, you know, look at the pretty blue skies, or just saying some things to kind of draw my attention away. And as soon as she said that, I was dunked. <laughs> or I should say I was Lundberged, is a better way to say that. <laughs> Uh, but it was just a tremendous week, and I think um, one of the nice things that for our Camp Kid Jam this year was just a beautiful week of weather. Wasn't it nice this past week? It, it's, this is why we endure these harsh Minnesota winters, so we can just have like a respite like this past week with pretty blue skies and warm sunshine. And uh, the blue skies and the warm sunshine give us great pleasure. But the Bible reminds us that, that nature, uh, the, the blue skies and the sunshine, is, is not there just to give us pleasure. It's definitely that. But also to remind us of a God, of a creator who's behind that. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm 19, one of the classic psalms on the world of nature. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, I will read. And if you don't have a Bible, you can look on with the screen behind me and see the verses there. But as we dive into this morning, this common ground between Christianity and atheism and science is that nature is a very important part of that conversation between those those groups. And in Psalm 19, it reminds us that the the nature, that the, the, the blue skies and the warm sunshine is there not just for pleasure, but also to remind us that we have a creator God, that there's a God behind all of this. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out all to the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. And their words are simply this, is that there is a God. God exists. And it's in the absolute beauty of nature, of blue skies and warm sunshine, that we see this potential of common ground between Christianity and atheism and science. And before we dive into that, though, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about atheism. And uh, perhaps you haven't had much exposure to it, except for you know that they deny the existence of a God or a higher being. And, And maybe that's it for you. But within the last 10 years in America, there's been a movement within the atheism environment or or community, so to speak, 
Um, they call themselves the New Atheists. And I want to kind of share some observations about this because I think it's very uh, noteworthy and important for you to understand some of the things that are happening in this new movement within atheism. First of all, the new atheists, as they call themselves, uh, really take a scientific perspective. In the past, they would argue for the absence of a God. They call it the divine hiddenness argument. Um, they would do that, and that would be pretty much it. But what they have sought to do is incorporate scientific hypotheses uh, scientific claims to argue and support their arguments, to support their claims. That's new to atheism. In the past, really, uh, they were kind of indifferent to science. But science very much has been inculcated within atheism in the last 10 to 15 years. And as such, I'm simply going to refer to atheism and science kind of as synonyms, similar terms, because we actually find within the scientific community the highest concentration of atheists. Over 60% of those who identify themselves as scientists or in the scientific community are atheists. So that's very noteworthy for us is to um, understand that they use scientific arguments and actually they'll actually uh, uh, share hypotheses and arguments uh, with sort of a, a scientific construct to prove their arguments. And that's fairly new to atheism. The second observation is simply, that, simply this, if you're taking notes, they're not messing around. The new atheists are different in this, is that they're very confrontational. And I don't mean this in terms of like um, guns and stuff, but they're very militant. They're very militant towards Christianity and Islam. Uh, in the past, atheists, again, would share the, um, their denial of the existence of God. But with this group of the new atheists in the last 10 years, is they're actually uh, not only doing that, but their goal is to upend Christianity and Islam, the two largest religions in the world. They don't simply want to share their uh, sort of uh, propaganda or information, but they actually want to destroy Islam and Christianity. For example, Sam Harris, who's among the new atheists, right after 9-11 came out with a book slamming uh, Muslims about 9-11, and that religion is bad, bad, bad. He's also done a similar thing with Christians in terms of a book called Letter to a Christian Nation. So their goal is really to not only confront, but they want to destroy Christianity and Islam. The second or third observation would be simply this. It's really not new. Uh, you know, behind the sort of scientific uh, hypotheses and, and behind some of the, the, the militant stuff is their basic content is not new. In fact, a, a couple of writers from the New York Times, who aren't Christians, by the way, um, actually a, a column titled, Why I Don't Believe the New Atheists. And they're not Christians, but they just simply uh, share why they don't believe in it. And, and one of the writers said that this atheism is really not new. It's sort of regurgitated stuff from the past. But what is new, this columnist noted, was that the, um, the sort of exposure they're having in the media outlets is that for the first time we're seeing uh, uh, prominent publishing houses actually publishing their books. We hadn't seen that before. We're actually seeing media outlets giving them airtime. For example, Sam Harris is a constant presence on TED Talks and online. The first time we're actually seeing books by Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris on the New York Times bestselling list. We hadn't seen that as much, especially not as prominently. So that is new. And then fourth, another observation is that the sort of uh, manner in which they approach this movement of new atheism is, is like a religious fervor. Um, it, it's it's kind of evangelistic in nature. And the quote is this, is that they actually uh, see themselves as sharing the good news sharing the good news. And at all costs for the ultimate future of humanity, 
by the conversion, they want to convert people as many as possible. So this is, very, this is something that we, we need to note. And the picture that came up earlier that I passed by, this one, if we can go back to that, Brian, is that these uh, four leaders, they call themselves the four horsemen. They kind of brand themselves as that, of the non-apocalypse. It's kind of an atheist joke. Uh, may, you may get it later, later on today or something. But uh, they see themselves as the four horsemen to kind of warn people about a, an apocalypse. That's not really going to happen. And from left to right, that's Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and that's uh, Christopher Hitchens, and then also Daniel Dennett. Very influential uh, leaders uh, within New Atheism. And Dawkins, for instance, wrote the book called The God Delusion. Uh, I mentioned Sam Harris. Uh, but these, these uh, four, uh, Hitchens is now deceased, but their books and their influence is very great, not only in America, but also in the world. So let's move on here. Let's move on and just talk about the, this atheism in and, and science, the connection of the two. And uh, G.K. Chesterton once wrote that atheism, of all the different belief systems, and we've looked at a lot in here, Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, um, other isms uh, that we've looked at, but we've looked at a variety of dogmas and creeds and faith systems and philosophies. Next week, please come back, because uh, Chad's going to talk about Buddhism and that philosophy. But we've looked at a lot of different worldviews and religions, but Chesterton notes that of all of them, atheism um, is probably the strongest in terms of the faith it takes to believe in that because what it is is a, an assertion of a universal negative, that there is no God, there is no divine being, there's nothing, nobody behind this. Um, that is a, a strong, strong assertion of, of that negative. But some time ago, I actually had the opportunity to meet a former atheist. I don't know if you had that chance before, and it was just an enlightening conversation. And as I talked to him and learned about his past and his story, uh, it was remarkable of, of his journey because he was an atheist uh, in his teens in high school. And he shared with me, um, as he grew up with that, became a writer and editor for the Chicago Tribune, and then um, got married and had kids. And he talked about um, how his atheism, uh, there was challenges in, in that part of the journey. His name is Lee Strobel. Perhaps you've heard him before. He now has become a Christian. He's written some great books, helpful books, The Case for Christ, uh, The Case for Faith, uh, The Case for Jesus. But I had the opportunity to meet Lee and talk to him, and he shared his story with me and a group of others. And uh, now he goes around the country sharing that story. And most recently he talked to a church in California, and here's a clip of a little bit of his story. I'm just going to tell you a story. It's a true story my story. And it's a story that began in atheism. Because I concluded it uh, as a teenager, at a young age, that God does not and cannot exist. I thought that God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they were afraid of death. So they came up with this idea of heaven and an afterlife to make themselves feel better about dying. That's what I thought. I thought the mere concept of an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe just absurd. wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. My background's in journalism and law, so you can imagine to put those two things together, we're kind of a jerk, that, skeptic. Uh, that you get. <laughs> I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper, and we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism. You know, we didn't want to accept anybody's word at face value. 
Well, he's tried to get at least two sources to confirm a fact before he'd print it in the newspaper. So he actually had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. How do you know? Maybe she's lying. You got any proof? Got any data? Got any evidence to back that up? Now, because I had no faith in God, I, I really had no overarching moral framework for my life. Now, I'm not saying this is true of all atheists. I'm just saying, telling you, this is what my approach was based on the conclusion that God doesn't exist. My attitude was I ought to become a hedonist. In other words, I'm just going to bring maximum pleasure into my life. That's going to be my number one priority in my life is just experience maximum pleasure. And that's what I set out to do. And as a result, I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane, narcissistic, really self-destructive kind of a life. And that was my life. I had a lot of anger inside of me, a lot of rage inside of me. And if he asked me back then, well, what are you so mad about all the time? I couldn't have told you. But I know now, looking back, what it was. I was always after the perfect high. I was always after the ultimate experience of pleasure. And guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So I had a lot of anger. I remember once my wife and I uh, got in an argument and our little daughter was there. And I just had so much rage. I remember I blew up and I reared back and boom, I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And the baby's crying and my wife's crying. It's like, hey, you know, deal with it. And uh, just hearing hearing from Lee uh, later on in uh, his sharing is that uh, he realized that he was at a really bad place, and especially that incident with his family, um, is that he began to look for something else. And his uh, wife began to attend church, and he actually attended church as well, and began to see some of the common ground between his atheism and Christianity. He, He didn't become a Christian right away, but he saw the potential. He saw the potential uh, between Christianity and kind of his worldview. And I just want to walk through uh, briefly here just a, a handful of different items. And if you want to write these down, that I believe um, that there is common ground between atheism slash science. I'm going to use those t- terms again interchangeably. And Christianity. Obviously, the first one, is, as, I, as I mentioned, is nature. What's interesting, if you go back into the early 1800s, this is before uh, D- um, Darwin, is that actually for a person who uh, sought to be a scientist or to study nature, it was a form of piety. Typically, it was like only the clergy or the only uh, devout Christians would actually engage in something like that. And what I like right now is among Christians that trying to reclaim that ground, that there is, there is some ground here between the scientific community and between uh, uh, Christians. So nature is an important one. Another uh, area of common ground would be morality, that there's a common ground between morality. Even Lee, as he was an atheist, he realized that he was living, to hear his words, in an immoral way. There was something not aligned in terms of living the human experience. Whatever you believe, Lee felt something, that there was something desperately wrong kicking through the wall uh, in front of his wife and kids, that there was something missing misaligned in his life, even though he wasn't a believer and didn't believe in God, but there's something wrong. And I think within morality, there is that common ground. Um, Because when you go across any kind of civilization or any kind of culture, uh, it's not good to murder. 
it's not good to steal. Um, I don't care where, what civilization, what era, is that's pretty much universally held. And that there is a baseline of morality that I think Christianity and atheism and science can actually work off of. And Sam Harris, for instance, did, just did a recent TED Talk about the importance of morality for uh, that scientific, atheistic uh, viewpoint. And, I mean, in his words, as I watched it a couple of times, and he's brushing pretty close to words that we use within the Christian community. So there is no question that there is a common ground between a moral law and um, with, with atheism and Christianity. I love this, this quote by Kant. He says this, Two things fill me with constantly increasingly admiration and awe, the longer and more earnestly I reflect on them. The starry heavens, nature, in the moral law within us. There's common ground. Another area of common ground is our minds. Obviously, within the scientific community, it's very self-explanatory. I don't have to go through it for you. Uh, they spend a lot of time analyzing and, and proving or disproving hypotheses and doing research and trying to find the answers to life's biggest questions. At the same time, uh, I think to the outside world, uh, there's the assumption that Christians don't use their minds but we know within Christianity, we actually do use our minds. And I love this, this uh, verse from uh, Jesus. It's in Matthew 22, and if you want to turn to it, Matthew 22, uh, verse 37. Because in the Old Testament, um, one of the, the commandments, one of the strongest commandments in the book of Deuteronomy in the Hebrew Scriptures was to lo- love the Lord your God with, with your heart, your soul, and your strength. And in the Hebrew, the word for heart actually meant a couple of things. It actually meant emotion, feeling, I think the kind of heart that we're used to here in American culture. But also, in the Hebrew mind, heart was the area of cognitive thinking. It was the area of, of rational, using your mind. So I love it in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew when, when Jesus restates this commandment. He's asked what's the greatest commandment. And he's quoting right from Deuteronomy. In verse 37, he says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And what else? All your mind. He brings that out. Because it's, it's not as, as, as visible in the Hebrew. He brings that out. So as a believer in Christ, it's not like we're trying to escape reality. It's not like we're trying to not use our minds. That, that, that uh, as I think Mark said, that religion is the opium for the masses. You know, like it's an escape. It's something that we just kind of shut down. Not at all. As believers in Christ, we're actively using our minds. We're digging in for the answers to life's greatest questions. And that's what I love about Jesus' statement here is to love God is with the totality of your life everything you have. It's not like you leave your brains at the, at the front door and you come into church, okay? That's what I love about Christianity. It's the use of our minds. The next area of common ground, this is, these next few are kind of uh, surprising to me. Tasha brought this to my attention when it comes to the scientific community, but within the scientific community, uh, there's a strong sense of collaboration and community. They work together on projects, uh, not, not many times you'll find a scientist on their own. They're always working together, always partnering together. So, f- so for them, uh, science and what they're trying to do is very much embedded within community. And as believers in Christ, you and I are created in the image of God, a triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. So that community among the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, is actively going on. In the Greek, when it describes the relationship among the three, it's, it's the same Greek word for choreography. 
So there's like this dance going on between the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, this intimate, close relationship. And we're made in that image. So we're made for community. We're made for community. Something that's so important for us. And we know as Maple Grove Covenant Church, uh, for us, is that community is so important. So important for us uh, to do life together, uh, to walk with each other. Next, another area of common ground Again, another surprise for me was the level of generosity among the scientific community. Is that they're so generous in sharing their time, their expertise with others. Always wanting to help each other. Generosity is actually a mark of a scientific community, I found. And likewise, within the church, that um, one of the expressions of our faith is generosity. That for us, it goes beyond Sundays. It goes beyond uh, a 60 or 70 minute worship service on Sunday mornings that, that the expression of our faith happens Monday through Saturday where we're, we're trying to be generous. Uh, as Chad mentioned, doing uh, uh, the uh, National Night Out was an expression of being generous, uh, providing food and just a great time for our neighbors. This past year, our church went, under, went through a program called the Generous Church where we were challenged around our generosity. Being reminded that John the Baptist says in John chapter 1 that if you have two tunics, give one away. Later on in the book of Galatians, Peter and James, who were like the pillars of the early church, they meet the Apostle Paul and they're kind of checking out his theology and doing sort of a theological interview with him, kind of seeing where he's at because he's a new leader. And, he kind of, and Paul shares what he understands. And they said, that's all good, but remember the poor and needy. I love that. Do not forget the poor and needy. The life of a Christian, of a Jesus follower, is providing for those who are in need. It's not an addendum. It's a part of what we do. So generosity is another area of common ground. Also another area of common ground would be risk. Of course, the scientific community, what they do in research is all about risk. They spend endless time going down potential blind alleys, trying to prove or disprove a hypothesis spending years sometimes chasing after something and and risking not only their reputation, but also their livelihood and their time. And within Christianity as well is that risk is a part of what we do. And maybe it's been some time where we actually thought that. Maybe there was the assumption that you came to Christ, all your questions, all your your doubts kind of were thrown out the door. And I I just think actually the increase uh, the more we dig in and try to understand what God is doing in this world, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, will I risk in, in continuing to trust God that he's going to provide for me? Will, will I take the risk that, that uh, a church community is, is going to be a place that I can really give my life to and be a part of? We engage in a number of risks, and perhaps if you've been a Christian for a number of years that you have forgotten, the risk is for new believers to actually lay everything out and say, God, this is my life. I want to love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to give everything I have to you. That's a great risk. And it's within risk we see this common ground. One last one, and this is an important one, the common ground that we see between uh, science and atheism and Christianity is interpreting evidence. Both groups take time to interpret the evidence. Uh, Of course, within science, they do that all the time to, again, prove or disprove an hypothesis or their findings. But also within Christianity is is looking at and interpreting the evidence. Uh, The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, interpreting that. Is that trustworthy? 
um, interpreting the reliability of the Bible, the Bible that you have in your hands. Is this really the actual words of God? And interpreting some of the studies that have been done on that. Well, as Lee shares in his story, he talks about, he gets to a point where he has to kind of interpret the evidence that he's been on this sort of common ground as an atheist and he's, he's looking at Christianity and he's, he's looking at this interpreting the evidence part and this is what he shares. I remember going alone in my room and I thought, man, I've just crammed my head with all this stuff for two years, all this data, all this evidence. I need to sort through it. I need to reach a verdict. So I thought, how am I going to do that? Well, I took a yellow legal pad and I thought, I'm just going to summarize the evidence that I've encountered over these two years. So I, I took a pen and I started writing. Just page after page after page after page after page after page. And finally, I put my pen down and I said, wait a minute. In light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> I'm just saying, that was my conclusion. And so I reached my verdict on that day. I believe, based on the historical data, Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, but he backed it up by returning from the dead. And then I thought, is that it? Am I done? Because honestly, it was a little anticlimactic, to be, to be totally truthful. I mean, I, so like, shouldn't something happen here or whatever? And, I, and, and then I remembered a Christian friend of mine had pointed out a verse to me earlier. So I, I got a Bible and I looked it up. It's John 1.12. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I thought, okay, now I'm getting someplace. This verse forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So, okay, I got the believe part down. Based on the historical data, I'm convinced Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, backed up by returning from the dead. I got that. I believe that. But I realized that's not enough. I had to receive. I had to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I had to receive this free gift of His grace, free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that He purchased on the cross when He died as my substitute to pay for all of my sins. And when I would receive that free gift, then I would become a child of God. So I got down on my knees next to my bed. And I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and I became a child of God. And perhaps that's you this morning as we've been going through the series, is that you've had questions and you've been investigating uh, Christianity. And I'm going to pray in a moment. I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, um, is to take that step like Lee did, is to actually invite Jesus Christ into your life. And you can just kind of pray that to yourself. And it's simply this, uh, Jesus, I ask for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. And um, I want to accept you into my life as my Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you to do that if you're here this morning. Or perhaps, like me, you have a family member or a friend who's an atheist. And as Lee kind of talked about the two years and the long process uh, that it took for him 
Um, for, for us, it's just continue to pray. Continue to speak in their life and to love them. Um, and it's a long haul. And, and maybe you're the only person in their life that's actually a voice of Christ. And maybe it's been 10 years or 15 years or 20 years or 30 years. Don't give up. Continue to share the real good news. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks this morning. And God, I am thankful so much for the Christian faith that despite what people may think, that it is expansive, that it touches every area of life and reality. And I pray that we would take confidence in that, that our uh, faith is not an escape from reality, actually. It's a plunge into it. And we thank you for um, your work in this world and that as we engage in conversations with Muslims or Hindus or atheists, um, that we do it knowing that we're not alone. Because God, you're already at work. You're actually making that conversation happen. And God, I pray for people that we might know, or perhaps ourselves, that have not taken the step to receive Christ, to become the child of God. I pray that would happen. And God, as that happens, that we as a church would come along those people and love them and be a blessing to them. And we do this for the glory of your name. Amen.